So if you got your Bibles with you, we're in uh, the book of Philippians. We're, we're coming to the end of our study of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 4, starting in the first verse. Uh, if this is the first time that you're joining us as a part of this series, either, either here in person or online, Paul wrote this book to this church that he had planted in Philippi. And Philippi was a Roman colony, but it was well away from Rome. It was on the outskirts of southeastern Europe. And Paul has a, has a strong attachment to this church. He knows the people well. He loves the church. He loves the people. And, and this letter is really a letter of encouragement that he's writing to them because he knows that there's a small group of Christians that are living in this very Roman, non-Christian world. And so he writes this letter as an encouragement. And it's a great one for us because if you ever feel like you're living as a Christian in a world of people who just don't understand and maybe or even hostile to what you believe, uh, th- this one is written for you. And so it, it's a great one. He, his message really throughout the book is give joy or, or, or rejoice, rejoice, be in joy, be a person of joy. It isn't a matter of your circumstances because joy comes from what we have within us when we have Jesus. And so as we pick it up in, in chapter 4, verse 1, we're really looking at the beginning of the end of Paul's letter to this church. And it's an interesting thing because uh, w- when I was looking at it this week, it, it kind of made me laugh because I realized what Paul was doing was doing a Minnesota goodbye in a 2,000-year-old Israeli way. It is this long, the entire fourth chapter is his goodbye. And it got me thinking, why? Why, why would he do that? Because I realized because he thought he would probably never see or, or talk to these people again. Uh, the verses that we're getting into, we're getting into this very heartfelt, for Paul, what he believes is probably a, a departure from this earth because, remember, he's in jail and what he's done is he's been charged with a capital crime and if convicted of that crime uh, by the emperor, he's going he's gonna to be put to death. Well, he didn't know it at the time. He could have just as well walked out of prison as he could have walked out of prison and be put to death. And so this letter is kind of his final goodbye. And it makes me think, what, what would you say if it was your last conversation with someone? Because in Paul's mind, he's probably not going to see these people again. He's probably not going to have the opportunity to write them another letter. And so what, what would you say? It's interesting, and you need to understand this about the Bible in general. Uh, I say it's Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul wrote it as one long letter. He didn't break it down that way. We've done it to make it easier to find passages of Scripture. Uh, if we said, uh, you know, there's this great psalm that we understand as the 23rd psalm, but if you go about the end or the first part of the book of Psalms, it's right in there. You find it. You're, you're going to love it. It sounds something like this. It makes it hard to find. And so what we've done is we've broken the books and the letters down into chapters and verses so that we could find them. But for Paul, this is just one long letter. But what we have is chapter 4 is the beginning of his goodbye. And we're seeing what is really important to him, the, the message that he wants to get across to people. So if you knew that you were going to see someone for the last time, maybe because you're you know that your end is near, your death is, is imminent, or maybe because theirs is. What are you going to say? I mean, what are the things that are important to you? We've got some last words in the Bible that are pretty significant. And, and I think we don't always think of that because we just assume we're going to keep living. We made it to today, we'll make it to tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. But the fact is, none of that's, none of that's guaranteed to us. And what Paul's doing here is, is he's giving us a glimpse 
of his goodbye words to these people he cares so much about. And I think back in my life, there have been some times that I have been privileged to sit with people and families as, as they share their goodbye words. When someone is in the hospital and they know that death is hours or, or a day away, those are, are pretty privileged moments to be a part of because what you hear is the last thing that, that people are going to say and the last thing that someone is going to hear. And sometimes those words are so encouraging. They're full of Jesus. They're full of life in the midst of facing death because they know the person is going to go on to an eternity in heaven. And you hear, I love yous, and I'm going to miss yous, and I'm going to see you again soon. And they're good memories, and they're encouraging things. And then I've sat in rooms where it was very much the opposite, where Jesus wasn't present, where Jesus wasn't known. And, and those are filled with fear, tears of loss, time lost, opportunities lost. And, and there's no hope of the resurrection in those rooms. And, and the message, the last words, are so very, very different. And I wonder if it was your time have you thought about what you'd say? Have you thought about what it is you would want people to know about you? I mean, the old joke is, you know, live your life in such a way that the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. Having been a preacher at a lot of funerals, sometimes that's difficult. And then there are some funerals that are just really, really easy to do. You know, you never want to give people false hope. But you want to give them hope for themselves. And so what would be your last words? Do the people around you know what matters to you? Do they know what's important? Do they know who is important? Do they know if you've got a, a, a source of joy in you that just always seems to be there? Maybe you're like Paul, that, that that joy, it doesn't matter the circumstance. You're just joyful. Do they understand why? Because that would be a part of the last words that you would get to share with someone. And so as we read this, that's what we're going to hear is these last words of Paul as he's written this incredibly personal letter to this church. And so chapter four, verse one, therefore, my brothers, and, and that word includes brothers and sisters. So it's not just to the men. Therefore, whom I love and long for my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I, I love that. Stand firm. You think about that. If you're going to stand firm, there's some things that you got to have clear in order to do that. The ground you stand on, you can't be afraid it's going to fall away. If you've ever stood on a beach on the ocean when the waves come in and as the waves wash away, the sand under your feet that feels real solid disappears real quickly. The ground that you stand on has to be firm. What you believe has to be firm in order for you to stand firm. And then if you think about it, if you're standing firm, the people around you Know that you're standing firm and they understand why. Paul says, stand firm, thus in the Lord. Don't stand firm because you're trying hard. Don't stand firm because the world tells you that your life has been a success. Don't stand firm because of the things that you've done. He says, stand firm in the Lord. And if we're going to stand firm as Christians, it can't be about who we are and what we think that we've done that's been good. It's got to be in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And Paul makes the case over and over and over. When we've got that clear, we can stand firm and we can rejoice because it's Jesus in us. It isn't us. And he talks about my beloved. 
It's because those people are so near and dear to him. Uh, it's an interesting letter when you really read it all at once because that message comes through over and over again. Stand firm. You know, you can stand firm no matter what circumstances surround you. You can stand firm no matter what the events of the day or the month or the season of your life might bring. You can stand firm when you're standing firm in the Lord. And you can have joy in those circumstances, whether in the moment they're, they're pleasant or not, when the joy is coming from Jesus. And that's the whole point of this letter from Paul. Now, he's going to go on here in the, in the next verse, in verse 2, and he's going to identify a couple of ladies. When we think about our last words to people, part of it is we want to leave a memory of who we are, or they want to leave a memory with us of who they are. I think it's kind of interesting in this passage, in this, in this letter from Paul, these, these two women get named. And the reason they get named is because of their quarrelsome nature. They get named because of the fight they were having. Now, now he tells them that they've done some, some things right, that they've been in ministry. But, you know, when, when you're done and gone, do you want people to remember you for a quarrelsome nature? That you were a person who divided people? That you were a person who just never could see the good in anything? Or do you want to be remembered as someone who, who brought healing, who brought unity, who always talked about Jesus? How, how are you going to be remembered? These two ladies we're about to meet are remembered for their quarrelsome nature. Verse 2. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Entreat's an interesting word. It means to implore. It's an emphasis. It's not a begging, but it's a strong, it's very emphatic word. He entreats them. He emphasizes how much he wants them to agree in the Lord. Obviously, don't they don't. The Bible doesn't talk about what the fight is about. It doesn't talk about what the division is. But these two ladies are listed because they were not getting along. They were having a quarrel as a part of the body of believers, so much so that Paul highlights it. Here's what's interesting. Philippi is a Roman colony. Most of the people there, retired military and, and uh, retired business people who moved essentially out to the countryside, they bought a lake home, as it were. Uh, they've moved to Philippi because the pace of life is slower. Beautiful surroundings. It's a gorgeous area. It's a Roman colony. But interesting, both of those names, Iodia and Syntyche, both of those names are Greek. That are Greek names, that are Greek women, that are here in this Roman colony. And so people have long wondered what it is that they were about and what they were doing. There's another woman that appears in the book of Acts, who's a part of Paul's ministry. Uh, her name is Lydia, Acts 16, you can read about her. Lydia is also a Greek woman who's very prominent in the Christian church. And what's interesting is, you know, the, the Greek culture was a little bit more uh, kept women down, kind of like the Hebrew culture did. But the Roman culture allowed them to flourish and, and to, to have a, a part much more equal to men. And so what a lot of people have understood that these two ladies, like Lydia, were probably businesswomen. They were probably women who had an ability to, to create or build or make something and then to sell it. And they had probably become fairly wealthy in order for them to have this kind of notoriety. And what's interesting about it is that we're living in this world where we wonder what role should women have in the church. And yet, you know, the, the people who go back and they, they write the commentaries think that Yodia and Syntyche and Lydia probably led very powerful house churches back in this day. They weren't just there. They weren't just getting along but, or, or 
or living amongst the people, but they probably led churches. It, it turns out that's a very timely thing for us to be talking about. It, it, it's a very interesting thing that these two women who are Greek in their upbringing, are living in a Roman culture and have a significant place of ministry. A few weeks ago, we had a woman who spoke here, a powerful uh, teaching on, on Scripture and also a very um, intimate look at a part of her life and a testimony of who Jesus was and who Jesus was to her and what he has been doing in her life and how it is that she first really saw him at work in the world. And, and what has just disheartened me so much in the few weeks since then is how many people never heard that message. The only thing that they heard was the woman delivered it from up here. That that was wrong, that the message wasn't worth anything because it was a woman preaching. And I think that's the kind of division Paul would have written about. You know, Paul writes about these women that, that they have this incredible role in the church. And, and so I wonder, what was Jesus' take on it? Because Paul's naming them, and he makes this one verse, this one statement in First Timothy that everybody grabs onto, and, and by and large, it's taken greatly out of context. And I think back to Jesus, because Jesus came to turn the world upside down. And what was the single most significant message that is the good news of the gospel? I believe it was three words. Those three words were, he is risen. It fulfilled prophecy, it fulfilled his promise, and it changed absolutely everything. He is risen. The most powerful message ever to be preached about the good news. And you know what's interesting about it? Jesus himself called and commissioned and sent, are you ready for this? A woman to deliver the message. Mary Magdalene, someone that everybody else, and, and throughout the history of the church, and it comes from a very sad understanding, and it's very unfortunate. We won't get into that today. But for 2,000 years, much of the church has completely discredited Mary Magdalene with really without cause. And yet Jesus called and commissioned and sent her to preach that most important message. He is risen. The best news of the gospel. He is risen. It changes everything for us. Jesus himself called and commissioned and sent a woman to deliver that message. How important is it that we, we understand the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, not concerning ourselves with the teaching and the traditions of people? And how powerful that was. Verse 3, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, doesn't name who that is. Help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel, together with Clement. There we get another name. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Companion, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting word. The actual rendition would be yoke fellow. That doesn't make any sense. That's why we say companion. A yoke fellow harkens back to the days, and there you can still see these today. But Jesus even talked about this, how oxen would be yoked together as a team. There would be this big wooden harness that was around their necks, and they would pull in this harness together when they were yoked. And the two of them could accomplish more work than they could have independently on their own. They were yoked together. The Bible talks about being yoked often. Jesus himself says that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And Paul is encouraging us to be of one mind and of one spirit and of one purpose. Imagine if we as a Christian church, even just us, just, just us in this little corner of the Christian world at the open door. Imagine if, if we could agree to be yoked together of one mind, of one spirit, of one purpose. Imagine what we could accomplish together for the good news of the gospel. 
And yet so often what we do is we pick apart the little things that come from our tradition, the little things that come from the beliefs of our religion, the little things that that don't even come from Scripture at all sometimes, and, and we put those together, and instead of being united, we end up dividing ourselves. And he is talking about being yoked together as companions working together, and that these women have worked together with Paul in advancing the gospel. He also uses that phrase, the book of life. The book of life is an Old Testament reference to those who are what it would call a friend of God. Uh, In the New Testament, we would talk about the book of life as being the list of all those people who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. What it really amounts to, it's a reference to what we talked about last week, and that is heaven being our eternal home, that we're citizens of heaven while we're here on earth, that we have dual citizenship. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul is always talking about joy. And I don't know about you. Sometimes I struggle with joy. When I preach on joy, then the enemy really has me struggle with joy. He's got me convinced that everything in my world is just falling apart. But I know that isn't true. And I don't know about you. Maybe when you think about joy, the enemy puts on you all kinds of stuff that you don't have to rejoice about. But what we're doing is we're getting caught up in our circumstances not the reality of Jesus in this. Paul says, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. It's like he's going, I'm going to tell you to rejoice, but in case you don't hear it the first time, I'm going to tell you a second time because you need to understand how important this is. Paul had a way of finding joy in everything. It didn't matter the circumstances. It didn't matter that he was in jail. He got to talk to jailers. It didn't matter that he had rocks thrown at him until he was tossed out of town for dead because he got to talk to the people who came and found him. It didn't matter the circumstance. Paul found joy because all of Paul's life was about talking about Jesus. And I realize when I struggle with joy, it's because I'm getting into my head and I'm getting away from my purpose, which is to proclaim the name of Jesus. How are you doing with joy? How are you doing with rejoice? Again, I say rejoice. Maybe you woke up and you saw the snow and it was a good excuse not to have to go to church. But then the part of you says, well, we can probably make it. And you know what? You get here and there's a, there's a sense of joy when we gather with other believers. And we get to rejoice. Maybe it isn't what we most wanted to do, but you know what? When, we're, when we find a way to do it, and for a lot of people, they are at home right now and you should be because the roads are bad. I'm not making a statement like that at all. But when we get together with people in church, there's a reason to rejoice that we can forget about when we go to work on Monday. You know, maybe our joy really is only to do with the fact that it is Jesus in us, not that we're happy. And so you think about that. If we live and rejoice like Jesus in us is real, then rejoice, again I say rejoice, becomes the way that we can live every single day. Our joy doesn't come from our circumstances. It doesn't come from how well things are going or uh, what, we, what we think we've accomplished. It only comes from the Lord. Our joy comes from the Lord. It comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus in us. That's why Paul makes such a statement about rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Uh, and so w- what kind of a statement of joy do you make to the world around you? Think about this one, and this might be tough. If people know that you're a Christian, or if they don't, What is the message of joy that you give the world? Do you walk around as one of those Christians that just look like someone forced you to do a 20-mile march with a 60-pound pack on your back? Because there's some Christians out there like that. There's no joy. There's discontentment. There's division. There's sadness. Or are you one of those Christians that go, you know what? Things right now kind of stink in my life. But Jesus loves me. There's two kinds of Christians in the world. Which Which one are you? What kind of a face do you put on being a Christian? Is it an appealing face or is it a face of discontentment and sadness and division? 
Because Paul goes on in verse 5 and he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Reasonableness, kindness, gentleness, moderation. Your reasonableness. You're not, you're not rocked by the waves, not, not rocked by what changes your circumstances. No, let your reasonableness. You're even keeled because you have the joy of the Lord in you. Why? Because the joy, uh, because the Lord is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Here's the cool thing about that. When we become a Christian and we have Jesus in us, here's what we realize. The joy of Jesus that we will experience in heaven, we don't have to wait for. We literally get to live it and experience it today. We literally get to live with the joy of Jesus in us today. It isn't some future thing that we have to wait to experience. The hope and the joy of the resurrection that we live for, we can live in now knowing as a fact that it's going to happen. All of those things right now, all of that should be a reason for us to have joy that is just simply unbounded. And yet he goes on and he understands this. In verse 6 he says, don't be anxious about anything. Because what happens? What's the first thing to crash in on our joy? It's worry, isn't it? He says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We know this is right. We don't have to be told that when we face a situation, we should bring it to God. We know that. And yet I bet you're an awful lot like me. I bet you're like me in that I, I tell God, I, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. You're going to have to take care of it. You're going to have to resolve this situation, and I'm going to trust you. And what's the first thing I do? I go about developing a plan how I can help God, right? Or maybe your prayer is this, because I've done these too. Say, God, there's nothing I can do. I'm at my wit's end. There's no way in the world that I can possibly solve this situation. I've got to give it to you, and so here's how I'd like you to do it. We have those prayers and we, we, we pray them and we hang on to our anxiety. We hang on to our worry. And, and you've heard me say this before. If you're going to pray, don't worry. But if you're going to worry, don't pray. So, so which is it going to be? Are you going to trust in the power of God at work? Or are you going to trust in your own power? Because worry is trusting in yourself. Prayer is trusting in God. And so at the end of the day, we, we really have to make a decision about how it is that we're going to approach prayer. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, even says this, and Paul refers back to him, because Paul wasn't there, uh, probably at the time Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, but he heard about it. Jesus says this, Matthew six twenty five. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life. There's nothing you can do by worrying. Worrying doesn't accomplish anything. And so what it means is that you and I have a decision to make as Christians. If we believe that God hears us and that he can respond to our prayers and he can do anything at all that he chooses to do, and I fully believe God can do that, we've got the choice of being one one of two things. We can be a prayer warrior or we can be a prayer worrier. One letter of difference. That's how subtle it is. You're going to be a prayer warrior or a prayer worrier. A prayer warrior gets on our knees and we give it to God knowing God is going to fight the battle, God is going to win the battle, and we have the privilege of being there to see what he does. A prayer warrior says, I'm giving it all to God, but actually I'm taking it all and I'm keeping it to myself because you're probably going to ignore me anyway, so i got to fix it myself. Are you going to be a prayer warrior or a prayer worrier? If you're going to pray, don't worry. But if you're going to worry, don't pray. See, the, the, the thing is, what we've got to realize is that we're making a decision there. And being a prayer warrior believes that the power of God at work is enough. A prayer worrier says, God needs my help doing whatever it is that he's going to accomplish. 
Do you trust in your own power and ability, or do you trust in the power of God at work more? You a prayer warrior or a prayer warrior? Verse 7, And the peace of God which passes, surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We know that the only peace that we're really ever going to have on this earth is the peace that comes from God. It's a peace that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven and that our salvation is secure in Jesus. That's the only peace we're ever going to have. And yet we so often try to find a million different ways to quiet the voices, to settle the nerves, to, to, to make our life a little bit more pleasant. We're not really even trying to seek peace. We're, we're trying to seek a break, a distance, trying to get away from our troubles. When we should be running to Jesus saying, you're the only peace I'm ever going to have anyway. Paul talks about guarding our hearts and our minds. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The reference that he's got there, and, and he's living this one, the reference is of, is of a soldier who is standing guard duty. Whether it's guarding a person or guarding, guarding something, it's the reference of a soldier that's on duty guarding something. Well, Paul right now is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, chained to a soldier. He understands being on guard duty. He is the one who's being guarded. He gets it. He's been watched 24-7. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how we as a Christian, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have to guard our hearts and our minds from the things of this world that would pollute us and that would take us away from Jesus. Our job, our responsibility as Christians is to guard what goes into our hearts and what we allow into our minds because that is what ends up coming out of us. What, what we allow in, what we keep there, what we look uh, look for, all of that stuff becomes a part of who we are. And Paul says, you've got to guard your hearts and your minds. When my kids were young, we, we, had, uh, we actually got made fun of a lot by church people because we were really cautious about what our kids could watch. And so what we did, rather than having TV in the house, we would buy videos. And there's all kinds of fun Christian videos and, and good videos for kids. But we had screened everyone, and, and Deidre was really good about making sure she watched all of them. And so when the kids wanted to watch a movie when it's at night or something, we had this whole shelf of videos that were okay for them to watch. And the reason was, we knew that soon enough the world was going to get a hold of them. Soon enough the world was going to have access to their hearts and minds. We only had a little while to raise and to influence and to shape these two children of ours. And so we did everything that we could do to guard their hearts and their minds because we knew that what you see cannot be unseen and what you hear cannot be unheard. And the thing is, as adults, we go, well, I can handle it. I'm just going to get a little bit of that garbage. It's not going to affect me, really, because a little bit of that garbage leads to a lot more garbage, leads to something that you said you never would have been a part of. Guard your hearts and your minds because you are responsible for what you let in. We could do what we could do for our kids for a while, and then we realized it was up to the world. Then the world was going to start hammering at them. You can't unsee and you can't unhear. There's a reason that Jesus talks about us as children. We need to guard our hearts and, the mind, and our minds the way that we guard the hearts and the minds of our kids. Why is it important to gather as church community? Because we're able to help each other do that. We're able to keep each other thinking the right thoughts and understanding the right thing and believing uh, what it is that the Bible actually says, not what people tell us to believe. 
We as a community gather together and we help to guard each other's hearts and minds. It's why the Bible talks about in Hebrews 12, we should not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? The day that Jesus returns. The day that everyone will have had to have made their decision. Do we believe in him or not? And so our lives are all about looking up to Jesus. And it's a lot easier to do that when our minds and our hearts aren't full of garbage. A few months ago when COVID hit pretty hard and we were allowed to start gathering again, the regathering they called it, I put something out on Facebook and I just simply said, quoted that verse from Hebrews and I said, you know, don't give up gathering. Um, Church is going to be open, and and the church needs you just like you need the church. And we think of the church, we understand it not as the building, but as the people. The very first comment that came in, it was interesting. The comment was, yeah, come back to church because we need your money. And I thought, that's the way the world understands it. The world understands it, that we're just a financial machine, that we're not a good news machine. And does the church need me? Does the church need you? If you think about it as a building, no. But you know what? I need my church family. You need your church family. It's why you went out in not the best weather today to be here. We need the church because you know what? I need help keeping my mind and heart going in the right direction. I need my brothers and sisters around me saying, I know that's what you feel right now, but that isn't reality. So I've adopted the phrase, believe what's real, not what you feel. Right? What's real? What's real is Jesus in me and the hope that I have in Him. Sometimes what I feel is very, very different. That's why we're encouraged to continue to gather as Christians. And Paul says we do that in one heart, in one mind, with one purpose. What's the purpose? To proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we want to do that for everybody around who hasn't heard. We want to do it as an encouragement for people who have heard and maybe have forgotten, for folks who have fallen away. It's our job as Christians to gather together in one heart, one mind, and one purpose, looking forward to the day that Jesus returns, because that day is near. See, we're we're called to live as Christians, not just pretend to be Christians. We're, We're called to actually share our faith, not just hide our faith. It's our individual and our church responsibility, and it's our privilege to bring the good news of Jesus like Mary Magdalene did to the world that day. He is risen. That is our privilege to bring to a dark and dying world that is deeply divided and more in need of the good news of Jesus than they've ever been. This isn't the time for Christians to be quiet. This is the time for Christians to be vocal. And it isn't about politics because politics aren't going to save us. This president, the last one or the next one, they're not going to save us. Jesus alone is going to save us. Our politics in our country in a mess? Yeah, whatever side of the aisle you're on, you know what, we all agree on that. But you know what? Jesus isn't a mess. People are a mess. And Jesus died and was raised again so that we could be saved. So what about you? How's your joy? Where is your joy? What is the source of your joy? Do you know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior and so that you have Jesus in you and you have the joy of Jesus in you? Or have you heard about it and you think, you know what, it's too much work, I'm not interested, and you keep working on your own best efforts, trying to dig yourself out of the hole that you have dug, thinking a little bit more hard work, a little bit more effort, and you realize at the end of the day you're just a little bit further down. Where is your joy? How is your joy? Have you accepted Jesus' free gift of salvation? If the answer is no, we have people that would love to pray with you this morning because they know that there is simply nothing more important than that that moment that you say yes to Jesus. Because saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to joy. It's saying yes to having our sins forgiven 
And it's saying yes to eternity with Him. And that's the heart of our joy. If you answered yes and and you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, do you live that way? Do you show the world that? Is joy what comes out of you? Or do people look at you and go, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you went to church. Is the source of your joy Jesus in you? Is that what people know? If it was the last thing, if, if yesterday was the last time someone had to have an interaction with you ever again, would they know how important Jesus is to you? Or did you spend your time talking about something else? Do your friends and your family know what he means? Maybe today is the day to start living in joy. We live for Jesus and then others and then yourself. And when we live for Jesus, we realize the power of God that raised Jesus from the grave is the very same power that's alive in us. That's a reason to rejoice. That's why Paul says over and over and over, he says, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Not because we did everything right, but because Jesus did everything for us. The resurrection power of God is alive in you. As a Christian, that is a reason for joy. That is why we rejoice. Let's pray. God, thank you for this letter from Paul. Thank you for the challenge that it has, the encouragement that it has. Uh, Thank you for the life that Paul was willing to live, that we could read his his, uh, life story and be encouraged. And God, you know, we're all challenged with joy. Some of us are just more joyful than others. I I think of people that just seem to exude joy. And then I think of others who, boy, joy, joy is a long way from how I would describe them. But God, as Christians, we really have no reason not to be people of joy and to, to proclaim where our joy comes from. It's hard for a lot of us to talk about Jesus to people that we know. But you know, we, we, we can talk about joy. We can be joyful. And that's the kind of thing that people ask questions about. And then rather than having an answer that says, well, it was a pretty good day, we can say that, well, I have got Jesus in me. God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each and every one of us. That... Uh, that wherever we are, wherever we are, that we would, we would look to see Jesus as the one who is the source of our joy. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Lastly, we want to give you a reason. If you're struggling, maybe you're going, I just, I'm, I'm missing out on this joy you're talking about, right? So we want to give you a reason to have joy. And so we had some folks that put this together, and I would invite and encourage you to sing along because you also are going to know all of the words. So enjoy this. And I also heard there's a possibility we might have a couple of guest appearances coming up in the midst of this. So roll it. <laughs>